This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the Midas Touch podcast, Ben, Brett, and Jordy fighting for democracy here and abroad. We have an epic podcast episode for you today. We have two guests. First guest is going to be Glenn Kirshner, NBC News, MSNBC legal analyst, former 30-year federal prosecutor and host of the very popular podcast and YouTube series, Justice Matters. Glenn will be breaking down developments in January 6th. What is going on in the New York Attorney General's office? What's going on with uh, developments with the DOJ's? prosecution of Jan 6. The committee will get into all of those issues with Glenn. And then in the second half of this podcast episode, it is an honor to have Alexander Sherba, 26-year diplomatic service member of Ukraine. He was actually the ambassador uh, of Ukraine to Austria from 2014 to 2021 and is the author of the book Undiplomatic Thoughts, Ukraine versus Darkness in these incredibly difficult times since the unlawful invasion of Ukraine by Russia. Alexander Sherba has been a major voice out there of truth of the resistance to the unlawful invasion. It is an honor to have him on the podcast today, and we will get real-time developments of what is going on in Ukraine. Brett and Jordy, how are you doing? Two great guests today, brothers. Oh my goodness. Yeah, no, this is truly an epic show. I mean, and it's an important show. I think, you know, we have two guests that are speaking to some of the most important issues of our time. Really excited to chat with Glenn about everything with the DOJ. We had him on just about a year ago to the date. And it was recently after Merrick Garland was confirmed. So excited to get his thoughts now one year later on how Merrick Garland's doing about the latest updates on DOJ, January 6th, and the prosecutions to come. Um, Alexander Sherba, man, he's been one of those guys we've we've spoken about uh, in the past few episodes, the people who we've been following day in and day out, how we wake up in the middle of the night to check Twitter to make sure that Kiev still stands, that Zelensky is still okay. And Sherba is one of those guys who has become one of my most trusted sources of news about what's going on in Ukraine uh, amongst, you know, a a host of others who are there on the ground. So just, you know, I I can't emphasize the importance of this episode, and I am thrilled and honored to have Sherba on the show with us. And Jordy, how you doing, man? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I mean, as well as I can be, the news is horrible. It's grim. Every every day, no matter what platform (laughs) you're on. But, uh, you know, outside of that, I'm doing well. I'm excited to be hosting the show with y'all today. We have an excellent show lined up. So why don't we just get into it? And I would say this, Jordy, you know, this episode can probably be appropriately framed as democracy battles here and abroad. You're right, Jordy and Brett, like, is the news grim? Yes, but it's filled with heroism. I mean, obviously, any unlawful invasion of a country, the way Russia's, you know, committing these horrible atrocities in Ukraine, Um, blowing up hospitals, attacking civilians. Um, These images are are horrifying. 
Um, but we do see courage. We do see heroism. We do see optimism in difficult and dark and grim times. And it is important that we have pro-democracy media like Midas Touch and others, though, who are framing these issues appropriately. Yep. War is grim. Okay, fighting for democracy is hard, mm -hmm. um, but fighting for democracy isn't a tweet, folks. It's not an Instagram post, folks. It's not the most convenient thing in the world that we have to make sacrifices to fight for our country and to fight for democracy here and abroad. Uh, but that's our obligation as citizens, not just of the United States, but of humanity. You know, Russia chose this path to confront the West, to try to destroy the United States of America, to try to destroy Western Europe. Their first foray into that outside of the what they did in Chechnya, what they've done in uh, Crimea, what they've done in Syria, what they've done across the world. But, you know, Ukraine is not where they're going to stop, folks. They're coming for you. And mm -hmm. so when I see Russia propaganda being spread by the GOP, when I see Russia propaganda being spread by Trump and Laura Ingraham and all of these people, and when I see these American GQ peers trying to adopt the personality of flunky despots like Putin, DeSantis modeling himself basically <laughs> off of that. And all the, the Ted Cruz, you know, in the truck, I'm standing with the fucking truckers in their AstroTurf bullshit. I don't even know what the fuck they're protesting, trying to, again, continue and perpetuate the insurrection against the United States of America. And Brett, we've seen this propaganda as Russia is losing in Ukraine. We've seen what they resorted to, their weapon, propaganda, and finding a friendly ear and a friendly mouthpiece in the GQP. And when this all started, like, and I'm going back years ago, you know, talking about 2016 election, when everybody was talking about how Russia played a role in that election, spreading disinformation. I always thought that Russia played a tremendous role in that. But I think I even underestimated how mm -hmm. big of a role that they played in that. Mm -hmm. Because I think for the first time right now, we are actually able to see the inner machinations of the Russian propaganda machine day in and day out, minute by minute. And we're able to see the voices who are amplifying these Russian disinformation efforts and lies. And I got to give credit to the White House and I got to give credit to the U.S. intelligence community who has really stepped up. You know, I, I would say the U.S. intelligence community community does not have a great reputation with things in the past. Think about, uh, you know, WMDs and the like. But right now, under President Biden, this U.S. intelligence community, this White House has been five steps ahead of the Kremlin every step of the way. They've been telling you exactly what the Kremlin was going to say, exactly what they would use as the pretext for the invasion, what they're trying to use right now as the pretext for chemical attacks. And guess what? They also need to stay five steps ahead, sadly, of the, our own Republican Party in the United States right here, because they are laundering these Russian messages, Ben, like you said, through all their platforms 
platforms. I've seen this new theory, which I warned people about a few days ago. And I think the theory actually goes back a few weeks now, but it just started gaining popularity so much so that Jen Psaki had to do a whole Twitter thread about it. This, this fake news about a Ukrainian bio lab that Fauci is using in order to spread the next COVID. And this is why Putin and Trump have teamed up to actually rid the world of this future pandemic. And it's actually a heroic effort that Russia is doing. Yes, this is what they are saying on the right. And it's not just those fringe, crazy voices happening in message boards and chat rooms. It's Matt Gates, It's Candace mm-hmm. Owens. It's J.D. Vance, one of the top candidates for U.S. Senate in Ohio. It is Charlie Kirk posting videos literally directly from RT onto his account on Rumble. This is coming from the top levels of the Republican Party and these Republican influencers who, Ben, I think you appropriately referred to yesterday as not Republican influencers, but Russian influencers. Russian social yeah, the media Republicans are nothing other than re- Russian social media influencers. Like Hilarious. that is that is the perfect they, framing they, for that. They, they want to be Russian TikTok stars. What do you say, Jordy? I said that's hilarious. That is the perfect framing. That's exactly who Charlie because they don't want to do policy. Great. They're no. not serious people. Yeah. Uh, they just want and they to don't be like Russian they don't love this country. They don't love America. What happened was we saw after the war began, after Russia started its war against Ukraine, we saw that there was a moment a brief moment where the United States came together for a second and people started to get, you know, on both sides, anti-Russia. And you saw Republicans even start to come Putin. Anti-Putin. And so you saw that begin to happen. But what you saw was like these people just begging, just itching for an excuse to to go back and, and prove that they were right to be hating on Ukraine and hating on the United States for their action. So the second that they got their script from the Kremlin, they ran with it. They filled that void in their hearts and they went, yo, that's what it is. It's the Fauci bio reminiscent in of post January 6th. Mm-hmm. There was this moment of national unity, a brief moment. Although, to be fair, I think the moment right now of Ukrainian because the world is unified, it really kind of isolates these radical right Republican extremists who are essentially the that's Republican point. Party. And, and so it's it's a slightly different but it was the same thing. You know, everyone was condemning Trump after the January 6th insurrection. Everyone said it's horrible. Then they got their talking points that these weren't, you know, that's not an insurrection. It's freedom fighters. They weren't really weapons. You know, that these were just peaceful people. Um, the January 6th committee was on a witch hunt, you know, and then they leaned into that narrative. And so they've been looking and actually waiting like, like Putin, Putin, when are you going to give me my talking points? Putin? <laughs> like, the, like they didn't know what to do for that time period. And then, you know, Russia was like, all right, uh, because, uh, you know, NATO helped to try to remove the chemical weapons that Russia was developing, like anthrax uh, during the Soviet Union era. They're like, let's turn that into the idea of America's developing bioweapons and attaching it to like pigeons. And, you you know, it's it's a theory like that. And then you have Matt Gates and others in the radical right, like tweeting yeah. out this stuff. Madison Cawthorn, a video came out today. Madison Cawthorn saying Zelensky is a thug. Remember that the Ukrainian government is incredibly corrupt and is incredibly evil and has been pushing woke ideology. Madison Cawthorn, wasn't that the one who visited like Hitler's like uh, vacation home and said it was the greatest day of his life? Yeah, visiting. He's also also the one who claims that the way he met his now ex-wife was he did a trip where he 
uh, crossed some body of water. It was a very nondescript, was gambling in a casino when they don't really have casinos mm. in Russia, met some individuals there who then introduced them to his wife in a Pilates class in Orlando. The story goes something like yeah. that, um, but it's a very I, suspicious story. Have we all heard about that, uh, you know, that classic love story? Ember, isn't it also true that Zelensky had parents, uh, grandparents who had died in the Holocaust? Yeah, I mean, these people are... So we're basically saying here in this one instance, Madison Cawthorn calling, <laughs> calling the Ukrainian president, uh, Zelensky, a thug. Yeah, no, it, 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 is, it, it is something that we all need, though. Again, it always goes back to what our mantra is on the Midas Touch podcast, which is that you at home can't be on the sidelines. You can't be on the sidelines because Putin and Putin's puppets, the GOP, whether you like it or not, are coming after you. I, I'm not. There's no other way to say it. Like you, you, we could sit silent. We could act like this isn't happening. We could go about our day and go to the movies and watch this and watch that. Although I'm not sure it goes to a movie theater anymore. I went to a movie theater the other day. Just to, I digress for a second. I went to a movie theater. I watched the. Ba- I watched the Batman. Oh, I'm so theater, jealous. Any good? And I didn't know how to interact in a movie theater anymore. <laughs> I just I, I didn't know what to even do. And so I was just like fidgeting and moving. Oh, no. And then Sochi was like to me, "What do you just sit still?" I'm like, "This is the weirdest concept. Why am I here?" With all the, anyway, I, I, I digress, but you could sit there. You could, you know, we could just go about our day, but that isn't going to stop. You know, may, maybe it'll make it past you. Maybe you'll be able to live through your life and not have to deal with it. But your kids, your grandkids are going to be confronted by these authoritarian in, in, in very dangerous ways. If you don't resist these authoritarians, these Matt Gates, these Madison Cawthorns, these Putin puppets, that are the GOP, the gang of Putin or the GQP. Let's bring in our guest, Glenn Kirshner, NBC News and MSNBC legal analyst, former 30-year federal prosecutor and host of the podcast and YouTube series, Justice Matters. Excited to have Glenn in. But first, Jordy, why don't you talk about Wondery Business Wars? This podcast is brought to you by Wondery Business Wars. Brothers. In 2007, two roommates rented out an air mattress to strangers to earn extra money. Their little experiment turned into Airbnb and exploded into a worldwide phenomenon with rentals in over 100,000 cities. But one of those cities didn't want anything to do with the startup. New York. Business Wars is a podcast from Wondery that examines the world's biggest company rivalries and how the outcomes of these battles shape what we buy and how we live. In the new season, Airbnb versus New York City, hear how the battle with the city became a symbol of struggle between startups and regulators. As Airbnb hosts realized how lucrative the side hustle could be, it quickly expanded to include entire apartments, luxury units, and even castles. Soon, real estate speculators were snapping up properties left and right to rent out on Airbnb. But rather than make money for regular people, as it promised, Airbnb began to limit New York's already short supply of affordable housing. Angry renters complained so much that New York City officials decided to do something about it. But Airbnb wasn't going anywhere without a fight. What I love about this podcast, man, it has all these twists and turns. And you honestly, you don't know who to root for. You want to root for the little guy. You want to then root for the big guy. Ah, twists and turns everywhere. Make sure you check this out. Check out Wondery Business Wars, Airbnb versus New York City. 
Thank you for that read, Jordy. Very, very impressive read. Uh, you know, the, the one thing though, too, is what I like about the Wondery Business Wars is that like they're kind of ongoing, like the story that you told is still kind of happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it is very interesting to reflect, though, on those living historical moments that we're going through right now. And Wondery just does a really incredible job uh, in general, the way they tell the stories, they immerse you in these narratives and you're learning history, but you're feeling a part of it. And uh, I've always been listening to all the different Wondery stuff out there. And so without further ado, let's bring in our interview with Glenn Kirshner. We are joined by Glenn Kirshner, NBC News and MSNBC legal analyst, a former 30 year federal prosecutor and host of the incredibly popular podcast and YouTube series, Justice Matters. Glenn, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Ben, great to be back with you all. And Glenn, thank you for inviting me. I had a discussion with you, some of your team members. It was a motivational discussion, just seeing the team that you've assembled. Um, and those discussions was a very inspiring night for me. Well, and I was thrilled to have you, as were all of our uh, Team Justice friends. And of course, now they want to know, when can we have Ben back? You know, <laughs> not just because they're tired of meeting with me every Sunday night by a <laughs> Anytime you want me, I'm there. And Glenn, we had you on the podcast about one year ago, almost to the day, in March of 2021, you had a lot of powerful words then in support of Attorney General Merrick Garland. You stated at that time that Merrick Garland is, quote, the perfect marriage of a public corruption prosecutor and a domestic terrorism prosecutor and, quote, the right man for the moment. One year later, reflecting on these words, do you feel the same way or any differently? I still applaud his background. Um, I know his accomplishments, both as a prosecutor at the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office, my old home for nearly quarter of a century, and then going out and heading up some of the most consequential criminal investigations our nation has ever seen, like the Oklahoma City bombing, the Atlanta Olympics bombing, the Unabomber case. He remains sort of the right person by experience. I do think he has proven to be too circumspect, too slow, and not appreciating the imminent danger to our democracy. I am not somebody who is on social media or on MSNBC or NBC News every day calling for his resignation. Let me tell you why. First of all, having lived inside the Department of Justice for decades, what I can tell you is it's a very slow moving outfit. Always has been, always will be. My friend Claire McCaskill, who was a former local prosecutor before she became a senator, I was also something of a local prosecutor because in the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office, we prosecute all the federal crimes and all the local crimes. So we are, in essence, both federal and local prosecutors. What Claire always says is the difference between the Department of Justice and state prosecutors is state prosecutors answer 911 calls and they bring criminal prosecutions in real time. Immediately, there's an arrest, they're in court, they're trying cases. That's not the way the Department of Justice operates. They don't take 911 calls. If they take anything, they take 411 calls about information that perhaps federal crimes may have been committed or perhaps are ongoing. 
And then they begin to investigate proactively before arrests are ever made. The problem is that that creates a culture of taking one's time and investigating slowly in the grand jury and trying to perfect your case. But the problem is the attack on the Capitol, the attack on our democracy presents an unprecedented series of crimes that represent a very real danger to our society and to the continued health and viability of our democracy. And the Department of Justice is like this big investigative steamership that has not been able to alter course even a couple of degrees to respond in real time to this novel series of crimes that have been committed. I hope they're gonna get there. I still have faith in Merrick Garland that he's moving the Department of Justice toward accountability for everybody. Now, I have been a very vocal critic of DOJ with respect to some of the decisions they've made, like supporting Trump in the E. Jean Carroll uh, law defamation suit. That is a dead wrong decision. Happy to talk about it if we get there. Um, I also have criticized them mightily for not moving out on crimes unrelated to the insurrection, like Donald Trump's theft of the 2016 election by being in a campaign finance crimes conspiracy with Michael Cohen, for which Michael Cohen has paid, but Donald Trump has not paid. Mm -hmm. There are the multiple obstruction of justice offenses years ago documented in the Mueller report that were just packaged up and ready for prosecution the minute Donald Trump left office. That's unrelated to the pro- to the insurrection. Radio silence on that. There's bribery and extortion of President Zelensky that I believe a, a novice prosecutor could prove in his or her sleep. Uncharged remains Donald Trump. So those are areas of criticism, and I hope we're going to get some action or some explanation from the Department of Justice. But there were two really, not to run on ad nauseum, but there are two really important developments just yesterday that I think help shed a little bit of light on what's going on at the Department of Justice. First of all, Guy Reffitt, a so-called leader of the three percenters, was convicted in less than four hours. That jury, and I was in the courtroom for some of the trial, watching the evidence, watching my friends, former colleagues, prosecute that case. And the evidence was strong, but here's what's really important for people to remember. The jury not only banged him out in less than four hours, barely enough time to choose a four person and begin surveying the evidence, but they convicted him on all counts, including obstructing an official proceeding, the congressional certification of Joe Biden's win. He didn't even enter the building that day. So he didn't even make his way into the Capitol. And yet he was convicted of the felony of obstructing the official proceeding. That's important. Couple that with another important development yesterday, the indictment of the former leader of the Proud Boys, Enrique Tario. Ben, Tario wasn't even in D.C. on the day of the insurrection. And he has now been indicted for conspiracy to violently attack the Capitol. These are some insights into how things are building at the Department of Justice. Remember when Merrick Garland said, we will pursue criminal charges of people at any level, 
whether they were at the Capitol that day or otherwise criminally responsible. Well, we just saw that play out in real life with yesterday's indictment of Enrique Tario. And I, I believe to my core, DOJ will not stop there. And you saw the Enrique Tario arrest and how that went down. You know, the old fashioned perp walk, now the insurrectionist walk, if you will, you know, <laughs> and literally taking him out with his shirt off, you know, naked and, and making a show of it. Was that intentional? That was probably intentional, but even more than the sort of showmanship aspect. I'm not a fan of the perp walks. I, I don't think that um, I don't think that portrays a law enforcement agency at its best. I understand the reasons it's done, and I'm all for deterrent value, believe me. But the way we deter future crime is by prosecuting, convicting and harshly sentencing today's criminals. That's how we deter crime, not by prancing them around in their underwear in front of the cameras. Um, but here's the I think one of the most important pieces of the way the takedown unfolded yesterday of Enrique Tarrio. Is there one person in this country who predicted two days ago that there would be this really consequential indictment of Enrique Tarrio? No one did. What does that tell us? It tells us that DOJ is doing its business with in the most tight-lipped fashion. We don't know what's going on. And that was just proved to us in the Enrique Tario case. So let's trust that they're still doing it, and they are, and they're going to begin working their way up the criminal ladder to the command structure of the insurrection. Roger Stone, Steve Bannon, Jeffrey Clark, John Eastman, Rudy Giuliani, Don Jr., Mo Brooks, and of course, the former guy himself. They all have criminal responsibility. I don't believe for a minute the Department of Justice will stop with Enrique Tarrio. Well, that's why I think there's a lot of import on the seditious conspiracy plea that they got as well um, of one of the terrorist Oath Keepers, another big development. And with seditious conspiracy, the next question is, it is a conspiracy between people between co-conspirators. So the question is, who are those co-conspirators? And that goes to the people who you just mentioned on that list. I cannot conceive of a Department of Justice or a United States of America in which a president can launch an attack against our democracy and try to unconstitutionally retain the office of the presidency without being held accountable, without being prosecuted for those obvious crimes. Crimes for which proving his criminal content, his guilty mens rea, his corrupt state of mind will be easier than the vast majority of cases that I handled in my 30 years as a federal prosecutor. And Bill Barr, quite frankly, could be a marquee prosecution witness against Donald Trump, because as much as I believe Bill Barr should be charged with his crimes, developed as a cooperating witness, and then testify against Donald Trump. He's running his mouth on his reputation rehabilitation tour, saying, among other things, I told Donald Trump that your claim that the election was stolen was, quote, B.S. Everything after that moment, and even, Ben, frankly, before that moment, it, it, it's, it proves Donald Trump's 
corrupt intent, his guilty state of mind, his own, own attorney general, not to mention his own um, executive branch agency said no fraud undermining the election's results. It wasn't stolen. It wasn't rigged. Let Donald Trump go in and try to present 12 people in a jury box that he had a good faith basis to believe it was. That is BS. And that's why proving his criminal intent, which some people say is so hard. I did it for 30 years with far less evidence than we have against Donald Trump. Wait, I, I, I want to go back to something you just said. You said Bill Barr should be charged with a crime. Yeah. And what do you think the crime would be that, that they should charge Barr with? How about for starters, lying to Congress, which is a false statement in violation of 18 U.S.C. 1001. That's an easy one. You know why it's easy? Because he did it on video. But here's what he did. <laughs> Senator Kamala Harris cross-examined him expertly and said, did anybody at the White House, including Donald Trump, tell you to open an investigation into someone? Bill Barr fumbled and mumbled and struggled with words like suggested because that's such a complicated word. And what was his answer under oath? I don't know. Guys, he did know. He just didn't want to say. And I wish people would accept this as true. I don't know is not a perjury proof answer. If you do know, because if I don't know, was perjury proof. Guess what? For 30 years, I wouldn't have been able to try anybody because every bad guy or every associate of the target I was investigating would walk into the grand jury and under oath would say, Mr. Kirshner, I don't know. Nothing you can do about it. Can I leave now? Get out of Jeffrey card. My friend, they could walk into a court of law, take the witness stand and say, I don't know. Oh, case dismissed. It's absurd that we're going to let an attorney general of the United States lie under oath to the Senate and get away with it. That is but one example. So the whole Bill Barr thing to me is just it's so baffling because to me, from my perspective, Bill Barr acted as Donald Trump's henchman the entire time that he was in that role. However, at the very end, during this one moment is when he seemed to put his fist down and say, no, I'm not doing this. Why do you think this, the insurrection, everything happening around January 6th, the election fraud claims, why do you think that was Barr's breaking point? Yeah, if if it's a, a bridge too far for Bill Barr when it comes to crime and corruption, boy, you know it's got to be <laughs> dramatic. And I think at the end of the day, Bill Barr didn't want to go to prison for treason. I'm going to use treason in a layman's sense mm-hmm. for the most egregious crimes against our democracy. Even Bill Barr is like, look, I will corruptly help out Donald Trump's criminal associates like Roger Stone and Mike Flynn and mm-hmm. Paul Manafort and this one and that one. But you know what? This is a bridge too far. I resign. And he was smart to do that. I don't I don't think he's gotten himself out of the criminal mix. I still think he should be charged for his crimes, but he was smart to to get in front of it. And what he's saying now, literally, when he says, I told Trump it wasn't stolen and Donald Trump went out on January 6th and lied to everybody and said they stole your vote. They stole your presidency and they're going to steal your country if you don't walk down the street and fight like hell and stop what's going on in that building. What I've just described is inciting an insurrection. Uh And we know we can prove Donald Trump launched that attack from a place of fraud and Bill Barr would be prosecution witness number one. Now, 
as I said the other day, Bill Barr's credibility is lower than whale droppings. And apparently his self-respect is even lower because he said, even though Trump is deranged and dangerous, I vote for him again. So he wouldn't be a fun cooperating witness for me to sponsor as a prosecutor. But you can bet I'd do it. You can bet. But I would do it after charging him, making him accept responsibility for his own crimes and then making sure he had an incentive to tell the whole truth about Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely got to agree with you that that right there in and of itself shows intent of Trump and shows that he knew the election was not stolen. He was being told by everybody that the election was not, in fact, stolen, that there was and there was no fraud. I thought there was another interesting thing that Barr was going around saying on this, quote unquote, rehabilitation tour, which is that Trump is so he was so detached from reality. He believed that he would have another term. He was just so out there. Do you think that he is trying to lay a groundwork for some sort sort of kooky Trump defense. What do you think is happening there with those words? I don't. I think Trump was less detached from reality and more determined that, you know, he had to convince everybody, regardless of the evidence, that the election was stolen. That's the only way he might be able to retain the presidency and then benefit from the horrific Department of Justice policy that says we don't think it's a good idea to indict a sitting criminal president. Here's the thing. I litigated in the courts of DC, the longest competency hearing ever conducted. I only know it's the longest competency hearing ever conducted because the judge told me so. And so competency to stand trial, which is what Bill Barr was creeping toward when he was saying, oh, he's so detached from reality, um, is it's a very, very, very difficult proposition for a defendant to prove to a court that He's so out of touch with reality that he's not even minimally competent to stand trial. That bar couldn't be any lower. And there's no way Donald Trump, after litigating this issue in front of a judge, would ever be found not competent to stand trial. Insanity defense is another thing. And he wouldn't have an insanity defense either. That's even harder for a defendant to win. So now this is just Bill Barr spouting off whatever Bill Barr thinks is in Bill Barr's interest to spout off at the moment. Another thing I know you've been following with DOJ is we've had so many promising developments in the past week. Like I feel like this week was actually a blockbuster week with with Tario, with Guy Reffitt. However, you know, there are some things that are right in front of our face that we're seeing that are just not happening, like Mark Meadows. And I know you've been having Mark Meadows indictment watch on your uh, Twitter feed, which um, I'm not sure if I enjoying is the right word, but I've been, you know, liking seeing your posts and and keeping them accountable for that. At this point, it's been over 80 days since Meadows was referred for criminal indictment. And yet we've seen nothing from DOJ. I mean, what the hell is going on there? So there are multiple potential reasons for it. Okay, one is that Meadows finally saw the light of day, would rather not go to prison and is quietly cooperating now with the J6 committee and with the Department of Justice. Stranger things have happened. You know, pressure bursts pipes. And the the more pressure I had to apply to a, a potential defendant to try to inspire cooperation, eventually, sometimes that pressure broke that pipe and the person would cooperate, even though they were originally determined not to. He could be cooperating. Um, It could be that DOJ is involved in some of their kind of famous legal navel gazing analysis, trying to figure out if it's okay to indict a former chief of staff. The answer is it, it, it couldn't be more clear. Meadows provided the J6 committee with tons of documentation 
responsive to a subpoena. Then when he was called in with another subpoena for testimony to be asked about it, he said, I'm not coming. Well, guess what, sport? You don't have a privilege for the information, the documents you turned over. So the January 6th committee had every reason to subpoena him, to ask him about that, and he has no legal defense. That doesn't mean there's not a lot of analysis and as I call it, you know, legal navel gazing at the DOJ trying to figure out is this something we can do. That could be another reason that they're slow walking this because let's be clear, the law says once Congress has made a referral of a criminal contempt charge, the U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia or the relevant jurisdiction shall present it to the grand jury for its action. The law dictates it. Now, it doesn't say the grand jury must indict. That depends on the evidence that's presented. Right. So but here's another reason they might be slow walking it. If it were me, I would be investigating Meadows for crimes well beyond just contempt of Congress. He might be involved as part of Donald Trump's emerging, the evidence is emerging, conspiracy to defraud the United States. Um, And so it could be they don't want to indict a standalone contempt charge. They're rolling it into a larger criminal investigation and ultimately indictment against Meadows. And here's kind of the fourth, if we're up to four, possibility, there's a fifth. One of the possibilities is they're so darn timid that they're not going to do it. I don't believe that for a minute. Um, I know that the colleague of mine, um, Matt Graves, is now the U.S. attorney. Um, he, we worked together at the U.S. attorney's office. And mind you, one week after he was confirmed by the Senate, uh, uh, Steve Bannon was banged out, criminally indicted for his mm-hmm. contempt of Congress. That gives me some comfort that Matt Graves is doing the job. Um, but the other thing is, once you indict somebody, all kinds of discovery obligations kick in and you got to start giving over documents. So maybe that's another reason to hold back. And then finally, and this is actually, I think, a really interesting investigative angle. When you indict somebody, you can no longer use that person in a covert capacity. What, What do I mean by that? We will run defendants as undercover covert um, sources because once we've got them and we know the evidence will support an indictment, we're like, you want to start working it off right now before you're ever arrested? Well, Mark Meadows, how about we wire you up, right? That, that's the old school term. There's all kinds of electronic ways now to wire people up. <laughs> right. But listen, here's the other thing. And I know I'm, I'm running on, but this is kind of the bigger picture question about why are they taking so long? If it were me, I would have indicted Trump long ago or asked a grand jury to. But the other thing I would do is because Trump doesn't write, doesn't read, doesn't send emails, doesn't text, doesn't do anything. He operates like a mob boss. Yeah. I would probably spend the first part of the investigation investigating covertly. I would have I would be up on T3 wiretaps of every flipping phone that I knew Trump was communicating to, not necessarily his phone, though, if I could get a court to authorize it, I would get it. But because why? Because now you need these statements being made by Trump because he doesn't write stuff down. So I would be working covertly longer than I ordinarily would in this kind of an investigation. And then at some point, you got to start locking people up and subpoenaing people to the grand jury. Yeah, a, a lot of food for thought. And this is why I so value your perspective. I mean, I, I think your perspective is just so important right now. I just want to shift. I know Jordy has a few questions, but first, I just want to shift to the Manhattan DA's office and touch on that for a moment. Uh, obviously, 
chaos there. Uh, Mark Pomerantz and Carrie Dunn abruptly resigned, allegedly because they were mad that Bragg suggested he would not bring charges against Donald Trump. But Bragg has since hired new attorneys onto the case. He insists it is moving forward. First, what did you make of the news when it dropped? And is Bragg just pulling our leg here? Is this investigation dead in the water? Yeah, I, I do think he's pulling our leg. Um, and I, I don't appreciate my leg being pulled. Uh, so when when I first heard of the resignations, I, I drafted a piece for MSNBC Daily, which has since been published. And the information that we had at that time was there were some rumblings that uh, Pomerantz and Dunn resigned because Bragg was not enthusiastic about pursuing Trump. And then the next development was um, the New York media tried to use the New York version of the FOIA laws to get Pomerantz and Dunn's resignation letters. And here's what the DA's office said. They said two things. Investigations ongoing. They said it is, quote, not true that we've abandoned the prosecution against Trump. And they said we've appointed a new lead prosecutor in the investigation. And but we're not going to release the resignation letters because it would impact our ongoing investigation. Trust us on this. And it contains too much information. At that point, I put pen to paper and I said, that doesn't make sense to me yeah. that Pomerantz and Dunn would drop into their resignation letters all sorts of intimate, confidential investigative detail about the case. I said, I think Bragg is covering up because those letters are probably deeply critical of Bragg's inappropriate decision to kill the case. And then the next thing you know, there's more New York Times reporting coming out that, yeah, yeah. you're darn right. It was because Bragg was killing the case. So, so here's, you know, a lack of action by whether it's by Bragg or the Department of Justice to hold political criminals accountable is horrendous. But when it is coupled with a lack of transparency, it is like the death of public confidence in institutions. Yeah. But Bragg added on top of inaction and a lack of transparency, deception, because that's not why. I, he was refusing, in my opinion, to release those resignation letters. So Bragg is distinguishing himself as the worst of the worst. And we'll see if he can rally. And, and honestly, I think you hit the nail on the head with the frustration of so many people, including myself, which is the lack of transparency across the board. I understand that you can't really speak to an ongoing investigation, that that's you know, generally policy in, in these prosecutorial offices. However, when you don't say a word... All it does is creates a vacuum for conspiracies and for anger and for discontent amongst the public. And I recommend the article that you had uh, mentioned, New York Times piece, uh, was a great read. It's called How the Manhattan DA's Investigation into Donald Trump Unraveled. I think yeah. it's an important piece that spells out exactly what's happening, as at least as far as what we currently know there. And I mean, straight up, it, it's, it's, it's not great. No, it's, it's, it's worse than not great. And maybe this new woman, Suzanne Huffinger, who has been you know, representing white collar criminals for the last couple of decades is exactly the right person to come in and, and head up the Trump mm -hmm. prosecution. I'll believe it when I see it. Mm -hmm. and hey, Glenn, earlier in the interview, you mentioned that you were critical of the DOJ and their decision to support the Trump Department of Justice position to join the case as a defendant against E. Jean Carroll in her defamation. You also were critical of the DOJ, apparently not prosecuting the presidential inauguration committee uh, their alleged theft. 
Why do you think the DOJ did, and in that last instance, did not do these things? You know, I, I do believe, <laughs> I, I've grown to um, dislike the word institutionalist. Mm. Um, you know, people, well, Merrick Garland is an institutionalist, and he's looking, well, you know, you can't be concerned about the reputation of the institution uh, more then you can be concerned about doing what's right based on the facts and the law of each case. So with E. Jean Carroll, for example, that was a discretionary call. Um, Merrick Garland's Department of Justice had a legal basis. There was precedent for him to take Donald Trump's side rather than E. Jean Carroll's side. That doesn't make it the right thing to do. I also don't buy into, we have to be so careful about taking any position against Donald Trump because the Republicans in the future might take that position against a Democratic president. Well, they already do every <laughs> minute of every day and they always have. So you're really only tying one hand behind your back. You're not constraining future Republican behavior. Heck, Newt Gingrich took to the airwaves and said, if the Republicans take control of the House in 2022, we're expecting that the members of the J6 committee will be locked up. Really? And I assume that's because you're going to use you're going to serve them with frivolous subpoenas. And when they fight them, you're going to use the inherent power of congressional contempt that the Democrats refuse to use. I mean, this whole thing is like, you know, we're making decisions in Wonderland. They're not fact based, reality based decisions. So I appreciate that the Department of Justice, each time it makes a decision, is trying to make the right decision. But he here is my fundamental concern. When Merrick Garland says over and over and over again, we will follow the facts and follow the law wherever they lead. I was a prosecutor for 30 years. That's our mantra. That's like saying, as a prosecutor today, I will breathe in, followed by breathing out. And <laughs> it's just kind of the way it is. What I think the American people need an answer to is, OK, we got you, Mr. Attorney General. But when the facts clearly show people committed crimes and the law clearly supports that they should be charged for those crimes. So we follow the facts and we follow the law and it should result in an indictment. But it doesn't. What are we, the American people, to think about the reasons for your inaction? Mm -hmm. Because by your own account, you don't seem to be following the facts and following the law. We would really like to know what you're doing, why you're doing it, and why should we have confidence in your decision or your timetable? And then let me just go back to something you said about we all agree that you can't compromise an ongoing investigation by spouting out lots of information and evidence, right? How many times did Jim Comey, and I hate to go back to this, as the director of the FBI, tell us every investigative detail about what was going on with Hillary Clinton uh -huh. right up to, mm -hmm. oh, I, I, this, this, this just fills me with rage. It's kind of like being a master mathematician, right? And then someone gives you, what's one plus one? It's like, it's two, it's two, it's right. You know, we could go into the far more complex analogies, but that's a crime. Yeah. <laughs> and by the way, this, this is actually a perfect segue to my last question here. So yeah. yes, finally, I mean, Glenn, your podcast is called Justice Matters. After the past six or so years, and especially the last year, uh, plus the insurrection, does, does justice still matter? 
Oh, it matters. I think it matters to this to a supermajority of the American people. It certainly matters to us. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it doesn't matter to some of the Trumpers um, and we're not going to be able to persuade them to, to change their minds or to change their worldview. And, and we understand that. But but the fact that it matters and the fact that it's not being done or served is what gives us so much anxiety and desperation. We feel despondent sometimes we feel hopeless and helpless. And what I tell everybody is that is precisely where Donald Trump and Bill Barr and Rudy Giuliani and Bannon and company want us. They want us hopeless and helpless and desperate and anxious and depressed. I will not give them that satisfaction. But I'll tell you what, if they try to take our democracy away, look out, folks, look out, because some things are worth worth fighting for. 1000%. That's why I'm proud to be a Democrat. We are the rule of law party, and we need more people to be proud of that. The real rule of law party are Democrats. Yeah. If there's not equal justice, then there is no justice. And I was so heartened when President Biden in his inaugural address said a cry of racial equality, 400 years in the making, you know, the the promise of equal justice for all will be deferred no longer. And yet I don't feel like we're making much progress on that front. Glenn Kirshner, thank you so much for joining us on the Midas Touch podcast. Everybody check out Justice Matters on YouTube, wherever you get your podcast. We so appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you, guys. It was a great interview with Glenn Kirshner, probably the top legal analyst out there right now, huh? Wildly impressive. Wildly impressive. The levels of his analysis, you know, I would tell our listeners and and viewers, go back and it's almost an interview you need to listen to twice because on a lot of these podcasts where you have legal analysts, and I say this as a lawyer, I'm not sure if I told you, but I'm a lawyer. um, People say a lot of fluff and bullshit to kind of like, like uh, just, just fill the time gap. But Glenn like packs in so much information that sometimes in just a three minute answer, he's hit on so many major like heavy issues. So go back and listen to that too. And that's also Brett, you know, we've had two back to back incredible legal analysts. I mean, you know, the best in the biz. I mean, going from- Who's uh, booking these shows? Right? Going from the Harry Littman interview to Glenn Kirshner. I mean, what more can you ask for? Um, But- Doesn't get better than that. Does it get better than that? It does not. All right. Let us bring in Alexander Sherba. This is um, it's going to be an incredible interview. Um, you know, uh, Oleg- Alexander being really one of the main voices right now out there, um, you know, of the resistance of the unlawful invasion. Excited to speak with Alexander. Before doing so, I want to mention uh, that this podcast is sponsored by Athletic Greens. Everybody knows that Athletic Greens is literally probably my favorite thing ever. I don't don't know how to speak more highly of it. Uh, If you want to see the results of Athletic Greens and their product AG1, which I drink every single day, just go back and roll the tape. Look at me four months ago. It's so true. Look at at a podcast from five months ago. And the, I, have, I have a quick tangent. I have a default setting on my YouTube where it defaults me to a podcast we did five months ago for whatever reason. I always see you, Ben, doing, conducting the interview then. I mean, it is, it is night and day from what you look like then to what you look like now. Yeah, because what I do with uh, you know, Athletic Greens is it's this powder, green powder, 
I scooped it, he dooped it, I looped it, he looped it, I put it in the cup, I shake it, he shake it, it, and I just put the powder in the cup and I drink it. Okay. And it has everything I need. I'm absorbing all the vitamins and minerals that I need in a day. 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole foods or superfoods, probiotics, adaptogens that help you start your day right. Before taking athletic greens, I would like struggle to try to make my own plan and my formula. And guess what? The tapes don't lie. It was not working one bit. It's lifestyle friendly. So whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free or gluten-free, it's for you. It costs you less than three dollars a day. You're investing in your health and it's cheaper than your cold brew habit. And Athletic Greens is climate neutral certified company, which is very important for me. Reclaim your health, arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash Midas. Again, go to athleticgreens.com slash Midas. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash Midas. Take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. All the Midas Mighty. I mean, it's not an exaggeration. I think probably half the Midas Mighty right now is drinking Athletic Greens and posting photos of themselves <laughs> drinking it and getting the same benefits. So just make sure at the end of this pod, you go to athleticgreens.com slash Midas and make sure you go and get Athletic Greens. Um, also want to talk about our partner, Better Help. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Relationships take a lot of work. A lot of us will drop anything to get and help someone we care about. We'll go out of our way to treat other people well. But how often do we give ourselves the same treatment? This month, BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you to take care of your most important relationship, and that is the one with yourself. I been using BetterHelp now for the better part of a year. I personally like BetterHelp because for me, it was inconvenient having to go drive to the therapist each day to sit in the waiting room, to wait, to go there. That would actually cause me a great deal of stress. <laughs> so being able to do this in a way that I can do it on my computer or I could do it on my smartphone. If I don't want to show myself on the camera in the day, I don't have to do that, which I like. And I found it cheaper and way just more convenient than traditional therapy. It's really been a good way for me to focus on my mental health. BetterHelp is an online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to, just like Ben said. And it's much more affordable than in-person therapy. And you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Give it a try today and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp help online therapy. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. And guess what? Midas Touch listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash Midas. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash M-E-I-D-A-S. Please check out BetterHelp today. I, I just can't emphasize enough how important mental health is. Everybody talks about, you know, going to the gym and the importance of working out, but you need to make sure that your mind is healthy too. That's betterhelp.com slash Midas. And without further ado, let's go and chat with Alexander Sherba from Ukraine. We are so honored to be joined by Alexander Sherba right now, who spent the last 26 years in diplomatic service for Ukraine. He was Ukraine's ambassador to Austria from 2014 to 2021, author of the book, Undiplomatic Thoughts, Ukraine versus Darkness. Welcome to the pod, Alexander. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, Alexander, first off, uh, where are you right now and, uh, and how are you doing? I'm in Ukraine. I'm not at my home, but... Uh outside of my uh, town, but I'm in Ukraine. I'm doing well. 
relatively well. It's uh, western part of the country, so the th- things are not as tense here as as everywhere else. Mm, so this is where I am. Great. And Alexander, you know, one of the things that I wanted to address with you right away, you know, and, and it's been bothering me is as you see the courage, the heroism, frankly, the wins day after day by the brave Ukrainians, the Ukrainian army, all of the people who are who are chipping in, men, women, children, everybody, you know, to hear you know, commentators, you know, on the West trying to present a dimmer view it, it it bothers me because they're not necessarily highlighting like what's going out there acting like ukraine is desperate and all of that what, what are you seeing i know you've you've sent out some tweets about this but what are you seeing to that effect well it's tiresome uh to to read this and to hear this uh, tone or undertone uh, uh when people comment on this war uh, Ukraine uh, showed uh, its uh, absolutely surprising, amazing side. Uh, all Ukrainians are united. We have been a uh, nation uh, split and uh, uh, quarreling about the smallest things until two weeks ago. And now we are one. Uh, we used to be Russian-speaking, Ukrainian-speaking, uh, nationalist, internationalist. We are not one right now. And it seems like, uh, as uh, Bruce Willis said uh, in uh, Die Hard, uh, <laughs> Putin must be running out of, out of bad guys. You know, he must be running out of bad guys by now. It doesn't feel like we are desperate. It doesn't feel like we are losing. It feels like uh, it's uh, it's a fight uh, of uh, of our lives, uh, and we deserve help. We deserve support. First of all. We deserve uh, to be uh, to be somehow protected from the sky. Uh, I understand that um, this topic of close closing the sky over Ukraine is difficult, but there are some other options. So maybe we could discuss that too. Let's talk about that. Let's go right there. What what, what do you suggest? What are you calling for? NATO, the United States, Europe to do with respect to the skies and in terms of support military, humanitarian, what, what could be done? This um, relations between nuclear powers, uh, uh, it's very much like a game of poker. Uh, uh, you're not allowed to blink uh, first. Uh, unfortunately, the West uh, has been blinking for the last couple of uh, decades, unfortunately, showing exuding weakness and uh, uh, showing uh, this conviction that... Uh, any kind of conflict can be resolved over diplomacy. Not, no, it's not. Now we see that not every every kind of conflict. Sometimes there is a maniac on, on the loose and you have to be uh, tough. You have to be strong. And um, with this uh, no sky, uh, uh, no fly zone over Ukraine, uh, the West has blinked, uh, has shown weakness. Um, so uh, maybe at this point, uh, the best way would be uh, to give Ukraine uh, weapons uh, to defend her sky, to give Ukraine the anti-air uh, defense, to give Ukraine the fighter jets, just not be so um, intimidated all the time. Uh, and it's uh, the perception that we have, for instance, when we uh, look at this uh, uh, MiG-29 controversy between Ukraine uh, United States and Poland over the last 
last couple of days. Uh-huh. I don't know whether you have been following it or not. We have been, and it's been it, it's been strange to kind of watch it and try to really understand what's going on with Poland saying that they were going to give jets, but they wanted uh, that you know they wanted the United States or NATO to give them replacement jets. And then NATO basically saying, we don't think the jets are the right thing. We think that the anti-aircraft defense makes more sense. Like you're there. What? Let's not listen to the, you know, the diplomats trying to use double speak. Like tell us what, what do Ukrainians need right now <laughs> specifically to, to finally win this thing? Fighter jets, fighter jets and air defense. And I know that uh, there are pilots who are ready uh, uh, to fly these fighter jets for Ukraine. I know that uh, uh, just uh, it's possible, it's doable. Just have to have uh, a little bit uh, of courage, a little bit of guts here. Because uh, while at the same hours when this controversy over this, you know, this bickering over over this uh, MiG-29s, uh, was happening between uh, the United States and uh, Poland. Um, Russians bombarded the maternity hospital in Mariupol. Our pregnant women were bombarded. Three people died, 17 people were in- injured, uh, including one child one, uh, was dead. And it's happening all the time. I mean, um, the residential areas get shot. Uh, get get shelled, get bombarded. And um, it seems like, you know, Russian soldiers, Putin is definitely the new Hitler, but Russian soldiers at many points, at many instances, don't seem like uh, uh, bloodthirsty Nazis uh, who, who want uh, to fight and to kill uh, face-to-face. But if it's not face-to-face, if it's uh, just a pilot who pushes a button, it's much easier to kill. And this is what they are resorting to. This is what they are doing. They are destroying our infrastructure. That they are killing the civilians. That's why the skies are so important. Now, Alexander, we've been seeing the images here in the United States, uh, you know, on, in our media, on social media, of these horrific war crimes uh, by Vladimir Putin and the Russian military playing out on a near daily basis, if not an hourly basis. You just mentioned the bombing of the maternity hospital. Uh, last report I read said over at least 71 children have been killed in Ukraine. I mean, what do you think it would be an adequate punishment for Vladimir Putin and the Russian leadership at the end of this war? The most important thing you should realize, the relationship between Russia and the West is a relationship of hate slash love. They hate you guys, but they love to spend uh, their ill-gotten money uh, in the West. They like, they love the idea that their dear ones can travel uh, uh, to the West whenever they want. So uh, the first thing that comes to mind, make visa bans uh, really, really uh, uh, broad. I I mean, include uh, wives, include uh, children, include uh, friends, uh, mistresses, whoever, uh, of the decision makers uh, and propagandists and oligarchs in Russia. This would be something that would really, really uh, punish them. Uh, Just uh, today, uh, Alexei Navalny uh, Foundation published uh, the photographs of uh, the dear ones uh, of uh, Lavrov uh, who live uh, in London and enjoy life 
I saw uh, that in that incredible, yeah. you know, apartments and just spending a ton yeah. of money in the UK. And she just, yeah. right. And she, and she doesn't have a source of income herself. And I think her, her, her biological father doesn't, but she's getting all this money from Lavrob, who I believe is her stepdad. Was that the story? Yeah. The same uh, is happening with, with all these, you know, other big guys, uh, decision makers. Uh, we have two, three families and the mistresses and so on and so forth who fly to, uh london uh, to, to their english castles to uh italy to their villas and so on and so forth um so this would be something that would hurt and of course it would be uh incredibly painful to see once this war is over uh, for uh, uh some uh, western president to start again some kind of a uh, reset uh, or, you know, reaching out a friendly hand uh, to Putin, Putin's successor and uh, swiping it under the rug. Uh, just uh, this um, political isolation must be there. Economic isolation must be there. So that's that, that would be the consequence that Russia has deserved. Uh, I, I, I'm, I, I have never been an enemy of Russia. I, until... At the last moment, I wasn't believing in this war. I uh, was, uh, um, you know, when I was uh, appointed ambassador to Austria, um, President Poroshenko was criticized for appointing a Russophile um, uh, ambassador. But right now, it just uh, it pains, pains me to say uh, both Putin, uh, the Putin's regime, but also the population who are ecstatic about this war are at guilt. Do you think Putin should be uh, tried for war crimes? Absolutely, but he won't probably. I think one of the most staggering images, contrasts rather, is what we've seen between President Zelensky and Vladimir Putin. We see the images of heroism of Zelensky. We see Zelensky literally in the trenches with his soldiers, arms around his generals, really just in the fight inspiring, bringing together the world. Then we see these ridiculous images of Vladimir Putin sitting 50 feet away from his people. He's kind of been hiding like in a bunker this whole time, not really making statements, kind of seems like a raving lunatic and a madman. What do you make of the differences that we are seeing right now between the leadership of Zelensky and Putin? Oh, we call uh, Putin bunker dwarf here. Uh, he's, just, uh, he's just this evil grandpa uh, who is isolated from the whole world, sitting there and meeting only with people who are ready to uh, submit uh, these so-called anal swipes, uh, because that's the safest way to uh, prove uh, you, you don't have uh, COVID. That's why some people uh, sit uh, right in front of him, like uh, uh, Bolsonaro and some people uh, sit uh, very distant from him. So Bolsonaro was ready to submit his um, uh, his tool probe, uh, but uh, for instance, Macron wo wo wasn't, which is ridiculous, which is crazy, which is insane. And he's just uh, uh, going deeper and deeper in this uh, rabbit hole uh, and dragging his country with him. And on the other side, there is uh, Vladimir, Zel Vladimir Zelensky, who uh, until recently was uh, uh, admired by some, uh, hated by others here in Ukraine, and all of a sudden, like my friend uh, um, Vladislav Davidson wrote on Twitter, Zelensky is a hero. Who knew? It just uh, he he is. I mean, 
I'm I'm proud of my country. I'm proud of my nation right now, of my military, and I'm extremely proud of my president. He is a hero. I just want to, you know, go on a tangent for a second and say how inspired I am by Ukraine and and how inspired we all are um, by everything you're doing. It's it's really an example of heroism that we just haven't seen really ever in in the modern world. And so I just want to thank you and thank the Ukrainian people, um, you know, from the bottom of my heart. We keep hearing all these stories now, you know, it's kind of every other day. It's, oh, Russia wants to have peace talks. They want to call for a ceasefire while they are bombing buildings. Uh, You've notably said, you've notably said there's really no diplomatic solution here with Russia. So what do you make of these every time that they say that there is a peace talk, every time they say there is an opportunity for diplomacy? And if not diplomacy, how does this war end? I remember how the Soviet Union ended when uh, the economic situation deteriorated, when people uh, got tired of the long lines, when uh, the Afghanistan war was lost. Um, So... uh, uh, I think uh, that uh, Putin is heading in that direction. Russia is heading in that direction. Things can escalate quite quickly uh, as long as Ukraine holds her ground and as long as the West is principled in the economic sanctions. There are very, very good indications and signs of, you know, this 300-something uh, 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 big corporation leaving uh, the Russian market. Uh, there are some uh, not so good indications like uh, Germany refusing to uh, uh, stop um, uh, importing Russian uh, uh, gas. Uh, but in general, I think uh, uh, Putin uh, um, has lost not only this war, he has lost Russia's future. Everything, he, all the gains he made during the last two decades, it all went down the drain. I just, so the question, so uh, he's going down. Just the question is at what price, first of all, for Ukraine, second of all, for Russia, third of all, for the world. What do you think the average person sitting at home watching the show can do to help? You know, everything counts. Everything counts. You can go to the website uh, of uh, Ukrainian National Bank, uh, look up the, um, the um, uh, account uh, requisites and uh, donate. Uh, uh, just the other day, the tiny, tiny nation of Luxembourg donated uh, 250 million euros to Ukraine. I mean, it's the size of the soul that matters. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, go online and use hashtag stand with Ukraine. Mm-hmm. You can call your uh, friends in Ukraine and just say uh, good words. You can uh, hug a Ukrainian who uh, lives next to you and is worried about the family. Just it's uh, everything counts. And uh, I'm amazed at how Ukraine, by resisting to the evil, um, just woke up the world and woke up the conscience of the world. You know, I was as a diplomat, I was so irritated by this, you know, concept, we are pragmatics, we are pragmatics, and people um, hid uh, behind this word pragmatism, uh, their greed, their uh, laziness, their stupidity, uh, sometimes, not every time, but sometimes, uh, very often. And right now, the world all of a sudden isn't pragmatic. The world is uh, just seeing a very clear line between good and evil, and the line is because because Ukraine is fighting. Uh, and so 
thank you for supporting Ukraine. Thank you for uh, seeing uh, this war for it is uh, for what it is, uh, just the fight between good and evil, light and darkness. Absolutely. I'm not sure if you know this. In the United States, we we actually we have a network called Fox News, news in yeah. parentheses here. So they've been broadcasting Russian talking points, lies, and disinformation. What would you say to them and the companies that allow them to broadcast their messages? God, shame on you. Shame on you. Shame on you, Tucker Carlson. I mean, when you say, uh, why should we uh, support Ukraine and not Russia? Uh, just what's wrong with your moral compass? What's wrong with your soul? I mean, how dead is your soul? When you when when you say like say things like that, when when Ukrainian pregnant women get bombarded, when Ukrainian children uh, are rescued from this rubble that used to be their homes, I mean, you ask why Ukraine should be supported. I mean, there is something seriously wrong with this guy, and there is something really seriously wrong with Fox Fox News if they give the, him the air. Alexander Sherba, I want to thank you so much for joining us on the Midas Touch podcast. Any other final words you want to get out to anyone listening? Oh, America, I love you so much. I spent uh, four years living in Washington. I just, uh, I always knew that America is one place in the world where people don't smirk when hear the word freedom and democracy. Mm -hmm. uh, and you, America, were an inspiration for Ukraine. Uh, now Ukraine is an inspiration for many Ukraine for many Americans. Just, just we. I want this to be uh, not only during the war but always because Ukraine is the natural partner for you guys because uh, we basically we defied our whole history, our bad karma, our bad you know decisions from the past and discovered freedom and democracy on our own, just like you did uh, 250, uh, 100 years ago. We uh, should be uh, partners forever. So thank you so much. Alexander Sherpa, thank you so much for joining us. And we we'll hope you'll be back on the podcast. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. So great having Alexander Sherba on. We are so grateful uh, to him, to the fight of the brave Ukrainian people. And uh, we will keep you updated, of course, as uh, all, all the developments going on in Ukraine. Um, just, I always like to, as we kind of reach the end of the podcast, talk about podcasts that we enjoy and that we like to listen to. Always important, I think, to make these recommendations because there's a lot of bad content out there. There's a lot of boring content and some people go, what? Brett, Ben and Jordy, probably not in that order. They usually start with me first. Ben, Brett and Jordy. Uh, Jordy's usually last in the list. Um, the <laughs> they go, what podcasts do you listen to when you're not recording your own podcast? Well, one of them is Hell and High Water mm. by John Heilman. Jordy, Brett, you want to talk about that pod? Yeah, I mean, I love Hell and High Water. And, and I just also want to emphasize what Ben just said. 
the importance of uplifting pro-democracy voices. I mean, like I said, we, we spoke about Charlie Kirk earlier in the show, who is currently spreading the Russian and Chinese propaganda to his followers. That's what he's doing. And he's on like the top 10 of the podcast charts. So let's try to uplift all pro-democracy voices when you see him. Helen Highwater is one of my favorites out there. It features John Heilman, who's one of the most prolific journalists in the country. Love seeing him on MSNBC every day now. You might know him as the, uh, as the host of The Circus on Showtime, which is one of the most innovative political shows ever made, or from his regular appearances as a national affairs analyst on MSNBC and NBC News. And you probably also recognize him as a guest on this very podcast, the Midas Touch podcast. And on Helen Highwater, John dissects our tumultuous times with deep thinkers from around the world of politics, policy, and culture. People like Brian Cox, aka Logan Roy from Succession, former Biden COVID advisor, Andy Slavitt, journalist Ann Applebaum, and LA mayoral candidate, Representative Karen Bass. So if you like in-depth conversations that get at the heart of this apocalyptic moment, we're still living through, unfortunately. Then Helen Highwater is the podcast for you. Subscribe to Helen Highwater wherever you get your podcast, wherever you listen to Midas Touch, you can find Helen Highwater. I would say this was one of our best shows of all time. And I hope if you learned something from it, if you took value in the interviews we had with Glenn, the interviews we had with Alexander Sherba, please share it with everybody you know. Tell them about the show. Give us a five star rating on the Apple Podcast app and be vigilant out there for disinformation because I am warning you that there is a ton, a ton, a ton of Russian propaganda and Chinese propaganda right now being spread to try to hurt Ukraine, to try to hurt the United States and the same bad actors in the United States on the Republican Party and those influencers are working in coordination with them to amplify these messages. So be careful when you are reading things online, be vigilant about things that you like, about things that you retweet. And Ben, you had a really interesting kind of counter message the other day that I want to hit on um, because, you know, there's a lot of concern right now with gas prices. It seems like if you turn on the American news media, sometimes it's like, is there even a war going on in Ukraine or are people more concerned about paying a little bit extra for gas? And I loved your comment, Ben, which I think really resonated with people online because it's got like uh, like 100,000 likes or 80,000 <laughs> likes or something like that. But Ben, what, what, what was the comment that you made online? The comment that I made is gas is expensive. Freedom is priceless. Mm. And when I made the statement, I didn't realize it was going to get 81,000 likes in the first day, but it was generally just an observation that I made. Like there really wasn't a deeper meaning other than gas is expensive. Like it is like, I'm not saying I'm not, I'm not judging. It just is expensive. Um, but freedom is priceless at the end of the day, which is the most important thing about what we are fighting for. You know, I, there's lots of arguments. I wish gas wasn't so expensive. I would uh, all agreed. I want to holistically address it, but what we need to all remember, what we need to all focus on is we're fighting for freedom. These are existential battles that we are dealing with. And just because we may feel like we're in safe bubbles or we're kind of avoiding the confrontation, you can't really avoid the confrontation for that. the confrontation will come to you as long as there are people like Madison Cawthorn, Matt Gates, Vladimir Putin's, um, you know, I, I put them all together. Ted Cruz's, sure. 
Governor DeSantis is out there. They're coming for you. They're coming to take away your rights. Mm -hmm. They're coming to tell you what you can and can't do. They're big government. That's the irony of it. (laughs) They want to take away. They want to restrict your speech. They want to tell you who you can love. They want to regulate your life because they are despotic people. And that's what they do. If you ever hear anybody say, hey, oh, the Republican Party. Oh, I vote for the Republican Party because they're the party of small government conservatives. Bullshit. They are not. The Republican Party is the party of big government fascists, big government authoritarianism, the biggest possible government you could imagine. They are the opposite of live and let live. They are the opposite of personal responsibility, the opposite of personal freedom. While Democrats are smart government, I would say, you have the Republicans who are big government authoritarians. And Ben, gas is expensive. Freedom is priceless. Immediately when you said that, I saw that Maria Shriver retweeted it and said, this is the messaging that we need. I love this messaging. And a lot of people were immediately also requesting, put this on t-shirts, put this on bumper stickers. So of course, Jordy, our merch guy is trying to spread the message that we need to highlight freedom above all right now because it is so important. So Jordy, tell us about the limited edition drop that we have just for our listeners right now. Yeah. Now you guys know we don't play. We've done a couple limited drops like this in the past. And once it's sold out, it's sold out. So we're running 100 quantity uh, in total. That's it. That's all the inventory that we have. Bumper sticker. It says gas is expensive. Freedom is priceless. And for every reason that the brothers just laid out so eloquently and so beautifully, go get this sticker today. Store.midastouch.com. That's store.midastouch.com. Thank you, everybody, so much for listening to this episode of Midas Touch Podcast. Special thanks to all of our sponsors, sponsors, Wondry Business Wars, BetterHelp, Athletic Greens. Everyone check out Hell and High Water Podcast. Glenn Kirshner and Alexander Sherba, thank you so much for joining us as guests. We will see you on the next episode of the Midas Touch Podcast. Make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel. YouTube is now the home of the Midas Touch uh, produced Maya Culpa uh, oh. is on the video streams on the Midas Touch YouTube channel. And the YouTube content is just great. Leave five-star review, please. That helps with the podcast growth on the charts. See you next time on the Midas Touch podcast. Shout out to the Midas Mighty!